If you would turn in your Bibles, please, the text we're looking at upon which the teaching is based comes out of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33, where for the next couple of months, closing out Paul's letter to the Ephesians, looking at some of these very practical topics, he's teaching the church basically how to live as the new humanity in Christ, to be that one new man that the cross and the resurrection created that would be a light to the world around us. And probably the most tangible way we make the invisible kingdom visible is the way we relate to each other. So he's talking about relationships in the home, husbands and wives, how we relate to one another in the church, our fellowship relationships. And he's going to talk in chapter 6 about children and parents and talk about how we act in the workplace. Then he's going to talk about the very practical issue of spiritual warfare. We're still working where he specifically uh, points out husbands and wives, but as I mentioned last week, this has application to all of our relationships because earlier on in the chapter, chapter 5, verse 2, he was saying the entire body, part of what it means to be that new man, that new humanity glorifying and loving Christ is to walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So yes, he's going to give application here to husbands and wives, but if you're not married, please don't fall asleep on me, okay? Because it is commanded of you as well to walk in love. And that means issues of authority and respect and love and sacrifice and yes, submission. All of those good words and those naughty words have to do with us. And we're going to look at kind of the key that they all flow out of and and come out of. So let me read for you Ephesians 5, 21 to 33, that says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. Last week, we gave the big picture of marriage, and we painted it, we gave a framework for it, and painted it in God's creation design where it says here in verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What Paul is doing is alluding back to Genesis chapter 2, where he said the purpose of marriage, the marriage was given to give us assistance, to be a help to us in accomplishing the vocation, that of being a servant in the kingdom of Christ, that of glorifying Christ. It's better that we do it alone. Husbands and wives, and if you're not married within the community of Christ, that God's creation design would be his family, his household, his people would bear witness, be a mirror to his glory. 
Now, I promise you I'm not avoiding the difficult things, okay? I, I know it says wives submit, husbands love, everybody respect, do all that, but we're holding off to another week for that, or actually with the missions conference, two weeks, and we're going to tackle another big picture issue, and I promise I'm not afraid to tackle the hard issues. So, ladies, it's coming. Guys, yours is harder, and it's coming. But I want to put it in context because here's what I think is the key verse to the whole passage. Verse 21 that says, submitting to one another, deferring to one another, out of reverence for Christ. To be honest, if all we're doing, and I said this last week looking at the framework, if this is just a series of rules and regulations, if this is even good principles... To be honest, there are plenty of people who can keep this, probably keep it way better than my wife and I do, keep it better than you all do. You can do this, but without reverence for Christ, without Christ as the hub, the center, the all in all, it's less than nothing. It's meaningless. And as a matter of fact, it's to your detriment and it hurts you. We're going to talk about it in a few minutes. It's called moralism. In a very sense, here's what Paul is doing in this section of the letter and when he frames the whole thing out of reverence for Christ. He's talking about what a former mentor of mine, Jack Miller, used to call the normal Christian life. He would often frame the normal Christian life. He would use that phrase to describe things like what Jesus says in John chapter 7 when he says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. And rivers of living Water will flow from within you. And then John adds, by this he's talking about the ministry of the Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit is like rivers of living water. Rivers of living water that flow from within you that will create the expression, the fruit, the manifestation of things like we submit to each other, we defer, we respect, we sacrifice, we're other-centered. When the hub is there, reverence for Christ, and we live what Jack Miller calls the normal Christian life. Or to give you another illustration, Tim Keller, when he was speaking and writing on marriage, he said, here's the key to marriage. He said, you want to know the number one thing that your wife needs from you? And then he would say, wives, do you want to know the number one thing your husband needs from you? It's a renewed you. The number one thing you can do for your marriage is pursue continual gospel-centered, gospel-consumed renewal leading to reverence for Christ. Your continual renewal in the gospel is the biggest thing you need in your marriage. Continued renewal in the gospel is the biggest thing Spruce Creek Church needs to be a family of God mirroring the glory of God. The biggest application we can have here, the number one thing we need to grow, to flourish as a church, is reverence for Christ. And so the issue is, how do we live that normal Christian life? How do we grow in reverence for Christ? One of the reasons I chose even the scripture reading Vic read, I mean, here's a picture of what reverence for Christ will look like at the end of the ages, the consummation of the kingdom. And by the way, when he says this is the marriage supper of the Lamb, all of us are being prepared to fully be Jesus' wife. Sanctification is preparation for marriage to Jesus. And here's the picture of it. 
John says he heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters. We're not talking now a sprinkle or a gentle creek, but the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, adoring, standing in wonder, being struck by utter awe of who Jesus is and saying what? For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. May I propose to you that if that becomes what we're consumed with, we'll argue a whole lot less about submission. If you're consumed with the Lord our God Almighty reigns and he's called me to fear him, not dread, but draw close to be in a covenantal relationship with him where he is our God and we are his treasured possession. We are his crowning jewel where worship becomes like the roar of many waters and the pealing of thunder where with many voices but one heart we cry out, Hallelujah. I don't think we're going to wonder about submission. It's going to be the expression. It's going to be the fruit And husbands loving your wives, dying sacrificially for your wife, being consumed with what is in her best interest, wanting to pour your life in her so she can release beauty, will become the fruit and the expression of loving Christ and revering Christ. So in other words, this is our goal. So in other words, I'm not preaching on the duties this morning. I'm giving you a discipleship sermon. What does it look like to revere Christ? And I want to do it by looking at two words and two concepts, so to speak. The two words are reality and renewal. And the reality is, why don't we revere Christ more? So we're going to ask a question of that. What is it that hinders us? What is it that blocks us? We're going to identify a couple of trends, a couple of things. And I'm going to challenge you. You've got to call to account these realities in your life. How do they manifest themselves in your life? That's kind of the bad news of the sermon. I'm giving you warning up front. There's bad news first. You've got to see these trends in your life. And then second of all, the second word is renewal, and that's simply how do we go about cultivating renewal in our reverence for Christ? The goal is simple. Cultivate reverence for Christ. This whole passage, Paul, notice how many times in the passage he talks about this concept. He doesn't always use the words out of reverence for Christ. You know, he talks about submission. He says, as the church submits to Christ, as Christ is our head, as Christ is our savior, husbands love your wives, as Christ loved the church, as Christ gave himself for the church, as Christ wants the church to be presented to himself in beauty, in splendor, in gorgeousness, in nobility. He's doing it all so that he'd be the center that produce a reverence. See, reverence doesn't just mean kind of an awestruck feeling. It means our very lives revolve around him. He's the center of your life. He's why you're a husband or wife. He's why you're single. He's why you work. He's why you reach out. He's why you love. He's why you do leisure. He's why you do rest. He becomes the why around everything, and everything flows out of that. Okay, let's notice a couple of dangerous trends, a couple of realities we need to address in order to cultivate 
a reverence for Christ, a fear of Christ. One of the things that I mentioned this last week, and I need to repeat it again this morning, and that is the danger of looking at this as a list of duties, as a list of do's and don'ts. Friends, moralism blocks reverence for Christ. Moralism is not the gospel. And let me point out something else to you. Moralism is not legalism. See, a lot of times we sit there and we go, oh, I'm not legalist. Oh, no, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm grace-centered. Okay, that may be true. Time out. Yes, here's what technically a legalist is. A legalist is somebody who is trusting in their own efforts, their own performance, their own obedience for God to love them, accept them. In other words, for them to live with God in the world to come. They're trusting in their obedience to be the grounds. That's legalism, and if you're doing that, my best advice is knock it off. Stop it. But legalism is not moralism. I don't want to say moralism is more dangerous, but in some ways moralism is more subtle because legalism is extremely dangerous. Don't, don't get me wrong. But I think we can notice legalism a lot of times. If you're going, I'm saved because I've lived a good life, you are a legalist, and that can be... Moralist is much trickier. See, moralist is, for example, in this passage, when we're looking at it and going, all I want to do is see how to follow the principle. So if I'm a wife, I'm consumed with, am I submitting right? Did I submit wrong? How do I submit? When do I submit? When do I don't submit? What does submission look like? How does that... And if I'm consumed... Why? Let's ask ourselves, and this is where it's tougher, it's difficult. Ask yourself the more difficult question of what is your fundamental attitude revealing by your over-obsession and consumption with this? Are you feeling like unless you obey the Lord perfectly and do it right, God won't like you anymore? God won't love you anymore? See, if all you're looking for is a one, two, three formula, what I call a do the right thing theology, that is a wrong way of thinking. See, first of all, it's a wrong way of thinking because that distortion comes from a superficial view of sin. Larry Crabb has written, I think, it's a dated book, it's over 20 years old, but it's one of the best books I've ever read on marriage. It's called The Marriage Builder. And he talks about this dangerous trend. And he talks about the superficial view of sin that we can have. He says, if what we do constitutes the sum total of our sin problem, then all we have to do is find out what we're doing wrong and choose to do right. But he says, but looking only with behavior or chosen acts of obedience or disobedience fails to take into account the complexity of human life as revealed in, in the Bible. See, sin has corrupted not only what we do, our behavior, but also how we think, what goals we set, how we feel about ourselves, how we feel about others, what our attitudes, aims, and intentions are. And thus, if sin affects us that deeply, merely changing our behavior, do the right thing theology, love, respect, submit, honor, all that, will not change who we are. Friends, this is very important, and I want you to notice how this manifests itself in your life. To cultivate reverence for Christ, you need to see this trend. Sin is more than merely behavioral. Now, I didn't say it's less than behavioral, but behavior is the fruit. 
See, sin is covenantal because our God, in his essential nature, see, all sin is against God, and God by who he is, how he's revealed himself to us, is a covenantal God. Here's what I mean by that. Covenant is a bond. God has bonded himself. You want to talk about a unique creator? This is one of the things that makes him holy, is the fact that he is outside his creation and yet bonded himself to his creation by view and nature of a covenant, where in everything he says, you are mine and I am yours. You are my people. You are my creation. You are my creatures. You are my treasured possession. And I am your God. Which means all our sin, goals that are outside reverence for Christ, aims outside of reverence for Christ, intentions, attitudes, fundamental commitments that bear fruit in the behavior are all a covenantal breach against God. And if the covenant, because God has bonded himself, that essentially means God is a relational God, that means all sin is essentially relational. And that means if the solution to sin, you're, try, you're trying to attach a behavioral band-aid to a relational problem. And one, it doesn't work, and two, it's not scriptural. God is relational and covenantal, and you can't just put a behavioral band-aid. And so there is a, this is one of the reasons I'm spending weeks going over the big picture here, putting this in context. Submission and love and respect and sacrifice and authority for it to be biblical and God-glorifying has to be done out of reverence for Christ. That means we have to watch out for ourselves the danger of this do-and-don't moralistic theology. This is just a bunch of rules, guidelines, and principles. Show me how to do this. Friends, that is very dangerous. The second danger that hinders and blocks our reverence for Christ is a wrong goal of happiness or fulfillment. Again, what is the essence of discipleship? Jesus put it this way. Luke 9, 23, he said, if anyone would follow me, sounds like he's given an invitation to be a disciple, an invitation to be a Christian. If anyone would follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He gives a gospel promise then. He says, he who would save his life. Now, see, again, we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let's renew our minds and think theologically. What does it mean to save our life? To save our life means that our intentions, our goals, and there's a difference between a goal and a desire. The desire for happiness is fine. The goal of being happy, the gospel promises, he who saves his life, who makes that his uttermost intention so that the purpose of relationships then is how can you cooperate with me to make me happy if that becomes your goal the gospel promises you will lose your life that means you don't experience life you experience the opposite of life which is death which is alienation and loneliness and isolation the opposite of what you were created for of what you were built for he says he who loses his life for my sake We'll find it. In other words, the Christian life is essentially we gain life by losing our life. That means wives, you gain life by losing your lives. Husbands, you gain life by losing your life. 
Single folks, you gain life by losing your life. Widows, you gain life by losing your life. You win by dying. Now that doesn't seem quite right, doesn't it? Jesus has a paradox for everything. Think of the gospel. And I'm going to quote Jack Miller again because I think he summed it up perfectly. Jack Miller would have a way. I've quoted this before. He'd have these three statements called the three cheer-ups. And he would look up and he'd say, here's the gospel. Cheer up. You're a whole lot worse than you think you are. In other words, you think your sin is just behavioral. Oh, I've got good news for you. You are way more flawed than that. You are worse than you think you are. Your aims, your intentions, your motives, your goals are worse than you think you are. And until you realize that, there'll be no... See, if not realizing these things hinders and blocks reverence for Christ, out of which everything in this flows. I want you to see the big picture of the passage. Then a second is to the degree that you see... Your intention is to do the exact opposite of fearing the Lord, the exact opposite of revering Christ. He said, cheer up. You are more loved, more delighted in, more rejoiced over, more worthwhile, more not abandoned, more valuable, more accepted, more approved than you ever dared dream. Imagine to the heights that you can, and Jesus loves you, cares for you, is committed to you, will go to the end of the universe for you. Yes, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Cheer up. You are loved more than you are even capable of thinking. And here's the issue. You're loved more than you want to be loved. What you really want is to be left alone. You don't want God to love you because for God to love you means he won't leave you where you are. He is so committed to you, he will not abandon his design, his sovereign purpose in making you like his son, conforming you to the image of Christ, making you more noble and gorgeous, and holy, and beautiful, inside and out, creating you to be the man or woman you were meant to be. You are loved so over the top. I want to see you commit to a resolution, commit to blocking whatever hinders you from reverence, from the Christ, from the God who loves you more than you could imagine. And then his third cheer up, based on those, was cheer up, come and die. It's a great way to come to life. Reverence for Christ begins with abandoning the goal, not the desire. See, let me quote Larry Crabb again. He writes... The crucial issue is not whether we should be interested in our welfare. He's saying, of course we're interested in our welfare. Happiness is a good desire. But he says, the issue is rather how we believe our welfare is best served. The gospel says, it is in your best interests to die to yourself and live for Christ. That is the best place you can actually, in a biblical sense, love yourself. 
Christian, do you believe that? How do we cultivate that? How do we cultivate renewal in our reverence for Christ? What will cultivate reverence, the fear of Christ? And I think the key issue is the issue of hope. You've got to have hope. Larry Crabb in his book, and I know I'm using him a lot, but it's a very good book, and he illustrates it this way. He says, I want you to consider the following scenario. And it's painful to think about because it's too true in our Christian circles and in life. But he says, a respectable member of the church who has taught Sunday school for years, who has served for years, they come to you and they say, I've taught Sunday school for 20 years. I've served the Lord. I've taught courses on the Christian home, on marriage. You can't tell me much about the Bible that I don't already know. And I've tried to the best of my ability to be the husband, the father, businessman that God wants me to be. Things have gone well, real well, in the church and in my business. But no matter what I do, I can't get my marriage together. I'm so frustrated. I'm so angry. I'm so miserable. I'm ready to quit. And to make matters worse, I've met somebody else. And he says, look, I know it's wrong, but don't give me a lecture on sin. If you knew the frustrations I live with, if you knew the pain I have, maybe you'd understand how much I need just to sit and talk and relax with someone. We haven't slept together, but God knows I want to. She's just so different from my wife. And I've tried hard for a long time. We've been married for 22 years, and I've never so much as looked at another woman until now. Yes, I want to please the Lord, I really do, but there's just no way to make this marriage work. Painful scenario. What advice would you give the person? What counsel would you give to someone who has given up hope, who is basically in despair, who's coming to you, and if you listen to them, are saying, why bother? Are you going to just give them biblical verses on being a biblical husband? They're probably going to sit there and say, I know all that. Sounds good. Hope it works for you. So what do we do? How do we help them? Now, remember, the overarching principles were transformed by the renewing of our minds, so we need to learn to think theologically. So it's obviously, yes, we're going to give them the Bible, the Word of God, because that's the power of God. That's where the power comes from. But, friends, here's something we too often miss. And please hear me. We need to learn how to apply the Word of God to the dynamics of the human heart. Too often we just take and throw Bible verses at each other. And we completely miss how the human heart processes. So take a look. And Larry Crabb gives an excellent analysis of this. And I'm going to quote from him here. He says, effective resolution of this man's problem requires first that we identify the central questions he is answering incorrectly. This despairing husband is controlled by a wrong answer to a good question. The good question is, is there sufficient reason why I should not regard this marriage as a catastrophe that justifies my despair? Is there any reason to expend further efforts to respond biblically? In other words, he's saying, why bother? Which is another way of saying, I have no hope. Now, look at what we have to do. That, we have to know what his heart is saying, how his heart, his heart is processing, his heart is saying. The good question is, is there a sufficient reason 
that I shouldn't regard my marriage as over. And we have to give him a sufficient reason. And the sufficient reason is not going to be in the circumstances of his marriage. So what is that sufficient reason going to be? And there's only one. The hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to learn how to apply it. Larry Crabb again writes, he says, we cannot cultivate interest in following biblical direction. Direction like this is the fear of the Lord, this is reverence for Christ. He says, you can't just cultivate interest in that if we believe nothing good can happen. Before the responsibilities of marriage will be regarded as inviting opportunities, because you cannot deny the pain, the sweat, the difficulty that they have. So you have to talk somebody and tell somebody why it's worth going through pain that will feel like death. And the only thing that's worth it is the hope of the gospel. You need to learn how to offer them hope, something that might be regarded as a little bit of water, an inviting opportunity rather than, I've been there, done that. Yes, you could give me every lecture on sin. I get it. Crab writes, before the responsibilities of marriage are regarded as inviting opportunities rather than pointless duties, the core of a person's attitude must shift from despair to hope. And the only thing that will do that, see, hope is absolutely necessary, non-negotiable, if one is to be renewed in our cultivation of a proper reverence for Christ. And where does our hope lie? It lies only in the love and grace of God. That's why the cornerstone of this, when he says, husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved you, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, as Christ, because of Christ's perfect performance credited to you, we're really loved. Part of Christ's performance guarantees he will What did Gandalf say to Sam Gamgee, my favorite novel out of The Lord of Rings? Every sad will become untrue. You've got to enter into the pain of right now, if you're counseling this man, you better be weeping with him, feeling the pain of what he's going through to offer him the hope of Christ died on the cross, not to abandon you, to give you a hope of resurrection, a hope of your sadness, because his sadness is very real sadness. And just to tell him, buck up, brother, Get better. The Bible says do this. That's not offering hope. But it's offering hope to say, Jesus entered the pit of despair with you. He wore your shoes on the cross. He felt God abandoning you. He felt God turning his back on you. He felt what you're feeling now only to the most infinite degree so that no matter what you're feeling, and it's real, and it's painful, and it hurts, It's temporary, so that your hope is the hope of a resurrection. The only, it sounds paradoxical, but the way to minister to that struggling marriage is to cultivate that reverence for Christ that's got to be blood, sweat, and tears, renewing hope, because that's the only central truth that will serve as a platform for beginning to put your toe in the water of inching out towards loving somebody else, risking pain, risking betrayal, risking hurt, risking rejection, risking misunderstanding, risking everything that we feel in relationships. And do you know the Christian body is meant to be a 
family of hope, a body of hope, submitting to one another is verse 21. Before wives ever begin submitting to their husbands, we ought to all learn to defer to one another out of reverence for Christ, recognizing the things that block and hinder reverence for Christ in our lives, recognize those trends and those dangers in your life, and commit to cultivating renewal by putting yourself once again in a position to dare to hope. And and it's it's a dare. It is something that is going to feel very risky, which is why one of the thing, one of the reasons why I think God intended for us to do it together, to be holding each other up. Love as Christ loved us and didn't give himself up, didn't give up on us, didn't abandon us. Let's dare to dream. Let's dare to hope. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you would cultivate hope in order to cultivate renewal within us so that maybe our worship would move more and more towards kind of saying is what's going to be said at the end of time. John heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, the sound of a mighty peals of thunder, crying out hallelujah, because they see that every sad has become untrue. You have righted every wrong. That though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. And we've seen that in that he's not abandoned us. He's given us his son. We see that the Lord our God almighty reigns. May we feed on that as we come to your table now. In Jesus' name, amen.